Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. A burning sensation glows on the streets of my neck. Choked up alphabets wash up in the margins of my notebook. Insistent, patient, full of fissure and memory. This program features the work of 2019 writer Samar Abul Hassan. In the first half, you'll hear her conversation with curator Kathleen Flenniken, recorded in the Jack Straw Studio. Tell me what your Jackstraw project is. So I am working on a manuscript, um, which is uniting several different bodies of work. And in particular, there is one project called Lena, which I'm doing some deep diving into. Um, Kind of set a lot near bodies of water. Bodies of water are an important inspiration for me. And this one takes place both at Pike Place Market and also sort of the Olympic Sculpture Park, sort of the water side. Mm. I wanted to know more about this character, Lena, and and her relationship to you as the writer and where she came from. Definitely. I was wondering, would it be okay to maybe just read a paragraph or so? Absolutely. Um, just because I think, just to almost call her to me a yes, little bit. I'd love that. So when I was working on my MFA, I actually, I had a fiction focus. But after, after graduate school, I really realized that Poetry was my true calling, so I tend to work a lot in between the forms. So these are a series of prose poems, so I'm just going to read just a little bit. Lena. Listen, Lena, O bright one, I am writing you, beseeching you. This morning you returned to the sound for repairs. I circled you invisibly, playfully, taking flimsy steps in between rocks in my jelly shoes, pausing to exaggerate my clumsiness Allowing the skin to bruise and scuff, I was invisible to you, and this gave me freedom to dance, to burst out laughing. In the private dance, it is possible to improvise. My plastic sandals were infused with glitter, and their shimmer cast copper-hued glows on the rocks you cupped and released. You looked up as if noticing me there. And then Lena, as if each rock held a vivid cinema in its face, each of a scene in which you were part. Your awareness was cleaved into two. With your careful, smooth hands, with the strength of salt water, you rejoin each rupture into brightness. Here, now, Lena, in brilliant solitude, not terrified of vulnerability, but treasuring a shivering kind of ink, I write you of alphabets and water, two empty pre-existing pictures of time and memory. Lena, I write you here to be less fluent, to be heard inside the half-dream state. While you dance with wonder's emblems in the morning, Lena, something wise, innocent, unlined, I hear my translucence at night. Here, at water's edge, we reach for the same antenna, its fragrance, its clarity. Mm. I'll pause there. I love the way this letter to Lena reveals the speaker so much. Mm -hmm. And there's so much said about that speaker in a really natural way. I think it's really beautiful. 
Wow, thank you. I I love the epistolary forms. I think they're so intimate, and I think that's definitely a big draw to writing in general for me is creating intimacy. So are these prose poems, do they tend to be epistolary? Yeah, this particular series, absolutely. It's just the way it started, almost like summoning her. Um, This shape-shifting person trying merely just to be present and alive and find some kind of acceptance. But it's as much about writing as it is about her, for sure. Definitely inspired by reading a lot of Helen Sixou. Mm. I'd love to hear you talk a bit about some of these connections, and the first one being writing and listening. Tell me about that relationship between the act of writing and of listening as you write. Well, definitely, for me in particular, silence is pretty important, even though I think ideally we can find space in any moment, any situation, even when there's like a terrible radio station playing. But I am someone who has gone on a lot of long meditation retreats and will often kind of create little rituals where I will sit or meditate, whatever you want to call it. to then be able to actually hear what's coming in. And so when I say, listen, I don't necessarily mean that I hear voices, but that, I don't know, there's like a sense that certain winds are rising and then I'm just trying to translate those winds or record those winds. How about this idea of writing and movement? So that's become quite important for me. So yeah, I was brought up in a traditional Muslim family and I don't want to say dancing was forbidden, but dancing was definitely quite de-emphasized. And I took a a liking to dancing in elementary school, and I had one, I think, one session, and then my parents were like, no more of that. So it became this, like, something that was sort of shoved in a drawer. And so I realized that a lot of my so-called creative blocks were rooted in a lack of movement as an adult. So... It could be me moving, like taking a movement class. There's so many wonderful movement classes you can take in Seattle that are just about creating a dance in the moment and not so much about choreography. But it could also be going to watch dancers and just literally watching dancers. I'm always like writing in the dark in the theaters. But there's something about movement that just propels my mind. And I always feel like I wanted to be a gymnast, but with words, you know. Like I almost crave some kind of athleticism physically, but (laughs) in this lifetime, it hasn't been so strong. But like to to be able to do that with language, to feel that kind of agility and exuberance is very exciting. And that seems to be ignited by movement, whether I'm the movement or watching movement. Yeah. Now, were you raised with two languages? I was. I was raised with... um, So my parents speak Arabic, and I speak Arabic as well. And so that is actually... The first language I heard, because they started having children as soon as they arrived to the United States. So for the first several years of my life, they barely knew any English. Do you think knowing two languages lets you sort of stand outside your writing in a way? Yes. So it's almost like then there's this third space that's created. And then that that is the space that hopefully, ideally, becomes this kind of place of agency, right? because it's this kind of mysterious, unheard of space. But practically speaking, like I took in so many words as a reader growing up, but 
I was kind of being brought up in a household where there was a lot of broken English. So there was like all these interesting kind of schisms in my development. And I haven't often been that comfortable with my voice or... So, I mean, I think, again, I took to the page, like to reading the page and ingesting the page. And then people would sometimes tell me, you actually write much better than you speak. And I think early on, I just had so much shame. I often say that because we went to, my brothers and I went to Arabic school every day after school. And he, he found the shortcut so no one would run into us. So we would like travel through this alleyway to go into this like other public school that wasn't our normal public school. And we'd sit in these borrowed classrooms and we were always like pretending it wasn't happening. So there's all this kind of shame with even just learning your parents' language. But then like, of course, like then beginning to study writing and being exposed to writers who actually found that kind of bilingual space very engaging and interesting and powerful. Well, that was like just so relieving Mm -hmm. and empowering. And then you know, that shifted. So now, even though, like, confusion and bewilderment is still there, it's, like, it's just a a lot more interesting. Tell me a little bit about your path towards becoming a writer. The earliest, most simple thing I will say is, so my parents didn't read to me very much as a kid, but I really loved street signs. So I just read street signs a lot in the back of cereal boxes. And so then (laughs) in elementary school, I won this poetry contest. I was in the fifth grade. And I just kind of remember, again, this kind of fever, this warmth around language and having created something. And I had a wonderful fifth grade teacher who said I had a flair for creative writing. Those were the exact words. Mm. And then I studied journalism, actually, in high school. And I had a scholarship for college to study journalism. So I worked a lot at newspapers for a little while. Really? Yes. And so mainly the amazing effect of that was just being thrown into a lot of uncomfortable situations. But yeah, I realized that I I more wanted to create kind of impressionistic works, like not having to, you know, be so constrained by doing these reports in six inches and right. So you somehow found your way into an MFA program, Mm -hmm. and that's after you sort of gave up journalism or it was going to be a supplement to your journalists? Yeah. It was just like, I actually, um, I went to graduate school way too early. Like, I think it's better to go later, but I was like 20, 20 years old. But I, I worked with this wonderful poet there, and her name was Laura Mullen, and she was incredibly encouraging she was particularly encouraging of experimental forms and opening up the idea of what writing could look like and how to tell stories in ways that, you know, were very nonlinear. So that was very, very freeing. So I think that's where it really began, where I was like, I could actually conceive of creating some kind of space for that bilingual experience. Even though it's interesting, I was listening to an interview with Rick Barrett yesterday And he was talking about how there are so many parts of ourselves clamoring for a voice, but only certain parts of ourselves get get in. But there are all these parts of ourselves that, you know, kind of stay hidden and in the background. And what does it mean to to bring some of those other identities in? Because, like, we tend to maybe 
So for example, the identity of being the daughter of immigrants, like it's an important part of my identity, but sometimes I also want to like escape that too. Mm -hmm. So how do I like allow for that, but also like the other parts of me that are clamoring, like how do we open up space? I mean, for all of us, right? Right. How do we open up space for the parts that we send away or yeah, are just too way deep to even, for us to even know that they're missing. Now we'll hear a selection from Samar's live reading. So I'm going to start by reading um, the first few pieces in the anthology, and then I have two more poems. So five total pieces. Q&A. Tell me about your first nocturnal flying dream. Every flight is flush with dialect, all eyes in different directions. Which locations touched you? Lush emerald ones, mist circling a creek or creaky neck. And did you touch down to trouble? There was a boy without arms on the ground, but I never reached him. I picked vegetables in a market in a foreign country, turnips shaped like hockey pucks. And did you touch any face? In a grove, I was spritzed with utterance, a cooling cloth to my forehead. And did you linger in the pre-dawn light? Close calls with clouds, beauty rests on skin. Someone had paid it forward at dance. Two women move toward and away from each other. Hanging plants sway, the eyes behind their lids filling with marigold. Inside sleeves, figure eights, shivering arms pass each other, trace each lingering in surprise sand dunes, feet tipping out like halved figs, as if flower commenced with two tails and the spaces underneath the end of a long train were made of ink. This next piece is actually an elegy for my friend Christopher Stagg, who was a Buddhist scholar and musician who was killed in a car accident last fall. Your grin plays on like a broken, unending tapestry of record light. Signs and rainbows, periphery buoyant with vision, luminous songbird, scholar. In the immense fabric between you and us, not to let it drop, friends rise like musical notes, negotiate weight of you in stairwells. Cross-legged, we sing your songs on repeat, as if fireside, language frail inside the chest of October. Chris, my driver, swerve. Reach in now, reach in for touch. Don't leave us scrolling beside ourselves. Who yearns to brush up against unfurling fetal position, fragment of melodies embroider, delusions die at the seam. 
prolific translator of folk heroes' songs, you pressed inside each of us a radical jukebox. So as many of you may know, a few days ago, um, the holy month of Ramadan began. And it's always a sensitive time for me since my family lives far away and I both participate and don't participate. And so just negotiating that, that space. So this first one is actually called Convergence. And it came out of my mom kind of sharing this visceral fear she had of her hijab being yanked off while traveling. And it was a time also where there were many news reports about such incidents. Convergence. There's a hidden space inside my mother's drawer of headscarves where the blood hits like the center of a drum. Patterns and solid colors pool and swerve together. Monstrous sea creatures swim through premonition. Dazed astronauts cartwheel against plum apricot emerge in sea green. Tangerine scarf of repeating lamps, tassels folded inward. The headscarves appear at my feet and pray like nervous children, shifty at sea's edge. Lift off and take shape as camera, tree swing, whisper. Put your smallest ear against the ground, lady. Then they fold according to size and light. A burning sensation glows on the streets of my neck. Choked up alphabets wash up in the margins of my notebook. Insistent, patient, full of fissure and memory. Throats march along a tightrope in a grove. If they could speak, they might turn on your poem, tear its flimsy fabric, refuse to become silk, naked, dying, still. To turn one's head, to turn one's head for cover, to yank a veil, to turn a divide, to veil a turn, to pivot a cover, to curl up in secret. As a girl, I too wish the headscarves away, saw scarves drift off in colored smoke at a faraway gathering. Sometimes the winds fought back, tucked in at the chin, a red radio. For a single day when I was nine, I donned a square checkerboard scarf while riding my bike in knee-length shorts. The scarf flew off by dusk. My mother gradually fully covers her hair, reporting a deeper, more vivid inner life. Bangs tucked away in her 40s. Tiny pins appeared at her temples for special occasions, as if scented with a first snow. If the pins could speak, they would puncture your poem, dislodge the nerve doors inside, shift temperature, invoke suspension. Poem of supernatural feet, of hummingbird speed, it sees you coming. This is my very newest piece, the one I've been working on just this week as uh, the fasting month began, Ramadan. Ramadan moonwalks away from its calendar sleeve, breaks fast into three aromatic seas, spooling in and out of vision. In a small air-conditioned room, coolness split among seven bodies, a girl cups one eye, summons the night sky, 
leaves the other exposed, slow, slow, slow to adjust. No frothy rim inside Ramadan, she writes in her notebook, thirst forming like an idea to bump into, and quickly the bodies of her family encircle her, one right after another, their strong, capable arms leap onto a spinning yellow wheel at a playground inside her mind. How supple they arrive at month's turn on the bullet train. Even her mother jumps on, chin up. Everyone is parched, but no one complains. Arms honeyed by sun and breeze, their hunger pangs make slit marks in her cotton skirt. She pokes her fingers and eyelets, shaped like crescent moons, airs around for words. Here's scents from bakeries open all night, whiffs which turn jagged, then faint. What do we mean when we say thousands of miles away? Her pen perches in the corners of mouths, traces a curve drowning between dusk and desire, a wavy shape like the Arabic letter ha, when enjoined, a longing salted by openings tired of staying lit. No frothy rain inside Ramadan, she tries again, unable to let go of bubbles of orbiting delight. Filo pastries glistening in a window in a far-off city, this recalls something. Nine years old, 9 p.m.'s first sips, watching the clock with her brothers, fingertips buzzy with numbers, soda pop fizzing, grown-ups barely aware of sunset, their spirits belly up, reconfigured. The sun moans on, blaring its nourishment. Too hot or too cold for orange soup? What was that feeling she used to know when she joined them, wholeheartedly, one lunar cycle after another? No ma inside Ramadan, she writes, though she means something like the opposite of waiting. Sleep swollen, magnificent with new radars, yawning awake in night's middle for bits of bread and tea, her nearly inaudible appetite, and bewilderment folding inside, the parent of night train, sounding behind the house, evening something, and cheeks returning to pillows for feasts on personal balconies, gussied up with softening, a glowing, a spooning, a rhythm of dawning. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production produced by Alyssa Keene and Daniel Gunther at Jack Straw Cultural Center. Our recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, Tom Stiles, and Ayesha Ubiatilaka. Our theme music is by the Bird Tribe Orchestra, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The 2019 curator of this program is Kathleen Flanagan, and the narrator for this podcast is Alyssa Keene. The Jack Straw Writers Program was inspired by an over-the-back-fence conversation in 1996 between author Rebecca Brown and Jack Straw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz. The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, 
Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks go to Larry Lawrence for transcribing our writers' interviews. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jack Straw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.